From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. This Saturday, January 22nd, Father Rutilio Grande, SJ, along with layman Manuel Solorzano and Nelson Rutilio Lemus, will be beatified in San Salvador, El Salvador. All three men are martyrs, killed in 1977. Father Grande, though, was the first priest assassinated before the Salvadoran Civil War began, and he was a close friend of Archbishop and Saint Oscar Romero. I want to read from a letter that Father Arturo Sosa, the superior of the Society of Jesus, wrote about Father Grande and his upcoming beatification. Father Sosa writes, Father Grande, born in the small town of El Paisnau on January 5, 1928, was a Jesuit of unsuspected religious and human depth. In his weakness, he found his greatness. He lived much of his life in the silence and humility of those who are becoming, step by step, companions of Jesus. Father Sosa goes on to describe the circumstances in El Salvador during Grande's time. He writes, The growing awareness of the need to promote a transformation of the inhuman circumstances of life of the peasant majority, a situation caused by the unjust structures of Salvadoran society, sparked the social and political struggles of this convulsive period in the history of this Central American country. Many members of the ecclesial communities participated actively in the social and political struggle. For Father Rutilio, his team and his close collaborators, who were committed because of their faith to the struggle for the justice of the gospel, there was a clear distinction between pastoral work and partisan political militancy. Finally, Father Sosa writes, The Church, in recognizing the martyrdom of Rutilio, Manuel, and Nelson, judges that their lives were taken because of the faith that gave their lives meaning, the faith to which they gave witness by shedding their blood. Today, to help commemorate the life and legacy of Father Rutilio Grande, author, poet, and Jesuit.org columnist Cameron Bellum is back on the podcast. She's just finished a new devotional entitled No Unlikely Saints, A Mental Health Pilgrimage with Sacred Company. In it, she devotes a chapter to Father Grande and his struggles with mental health. She shares what she learned about him in preparing this book, as well as why it's important to weave this part of his story into his lasting legacy. You can find a link to the book in the notes below. Now, here's Cameron. Cameron Bellum, welcome back to AMDG. So glad to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back. Yeah, we're excited. So last time you were here to talk about a Jesuit people know pretty well, St. Ignatius of Loyola. Today, we're talking about another Jesuit, uh, but one folks may not be as familiar with. So you're going to give us a little bit of insight into the life and legacy of Rutilio Grande, right? Right, yeah. Um, so a lot of people, I think, come to uh, Rutilio Grande through St. Oscar Romero. Um, they were they were friends. They were in seminary together in El Salvador um, in the 20th century. Uh, both were martyrs, Rutilio Grande in 1977 and then um, St. Oscar Romero in 1980. Um, and Rutilio Grande really was... Um, 
he really believed in a faith that does justice. And I am really inspired by his, um, by his courage. He was at the crossroads of a lot of tumult and change, both in his country, but also in the church. Um, right after Vatican II, these were huge sweeping changes for the church. And he was really an early adopter of um, uh, a lot also of the uh, Medellin Conference of the Latin American Bishops, which was in 1968, which really established for um, for the Latin American church, the preferential option for the poor and a commitment to addressing the oppression of poverty. And this was really not welcome news for the government and the oligarchs of um, El Salvador, which was a, a very impoverished country in which there was huge inequity in the people who actually owned the land and the, and the people who worked the land it was also really not welcome to the church. It was very comfortable being kind of buddy, buddy with the, with the government, the military and the oligarchs. It was not really looking to um, run afoul of them. It was not really looking to um, basically increase the consciousness of uh, the poor of their inherent dignity and really something that Rutilio was amazing at was uh, empowering the lay people. He was one of the originators of what were called the Christian base communities, which were um, scriptural studies led by lay people in rural areas. And um, basically it, it just all came down to the, the dignity of the human person. Um, what Rutilio Grande said that I remember a lot is that if Christ is not to remain in the clouds, the gospel has to grow little feet. So basically, where is Christ suffering here on earth? And that, that basically there's no part of human experience, in, including poverty and oppression, that doesn't need to be addressed by the gospel. It's not something to be swept under the rug or accepted, but something that the church needs to take an active part in, um, advocating for land reform, um, and advocating for an, an end to oppression. So um, Rutilio, he got pushed back from the church. He got pushed back from the government. And he, he just really was fearless. He received death threats a lot. And he was eventually um, assassinated by a death squad for his work with the poor. Um, and he was also... Uh, like St. Oscar Romero, one of many people who um, work with the poor who was accused of being a communist. Um, we continue to see that, continue to see that a lot. Um, so Rutilio Grande was assassinated less than one month after St. Oscar Romero was installed as the Archbishop of San Salvador and essentially the Archbishop of the entire country. And um, he was appointed because he wasn't expected to rock the boat. He was kind of a quiet, studious, bespectacled guy. And um, what happened when Rutilio Grande was assassinated was a lot of people consider it Oscar Romero's conversion. Um, he canceled all of the masses in the entire um, in the entire diocese and had this one central mass. And he said, whoever touches one of my priests touches me. And from that moment, he 
also was fearless and um, spoke prophetically against um, against repression um, and against the, the the violence of the government. Um, Rodolfo Cardinal, who wrote the uh, this really incredible biography of Rutilio Grande. He had this conversation with Pope Francis in 2015 about his um, biographical work on Rutilio Grande. And he said, well, you know, he, he needs a miracle in order to be a saint, in order to be beatified. He was venerable. He's being uh, named blessed on January 22nd. And Pope Francis said the great miracle of Rutilio Grande was Oscar Romero. That that was his um, the way that he changed Oscar Romero's life and and kind of created a way for him to step into his prophetic path, basically. Right. I I love that. Um, I love so much because it's so uh, it's so helpful for us to think about in our own faith lives, right? Like the uh, you know those those things that look like failure or or falling short or or you know death and and darkness you know, God's story says, no, you know, we're not done yet. And, and it keeps pushing us onward. And so someone else picks up, you know, picks up the baton and, and keeps going. And, and I think that's what we see, you know, in Jesus at, at the the very onset of our, of our faith story. And, and, um, and certainly in, in, in Rotilia Grande and, and, and Oscar Romero, I, I want to, um, I want to rewind just a moment for listeners. Um, cause I think you, you touched on a really important moment in church history. So I'm going to test your, your church history knowledge. Um, oh and uh, I know, so buckle up, get your Google out. Um, but um, you talked about the, the Medellin conference. And I think for, for many folks that are listening to this podcast, it's, it's possible that the idea of, oh yeah, of course the church is with, you know, with and for the poor and, and, and accompanying those who are most vulnerable and, and, and fighting against injustice. But as, as you said, uh, you know, the conference at Medellin was, was, was very a pivotal moment uh, in the life uh, of the church uh, and really organic to the experience of, of the church in Latin America. So can you say, um, just give us a little bit more context on, on why it was so important and kind of what the stakes were going into it? Yeah, well, I, I, I would say that the, the church's position in El Salvador and also probably in many other countries prior to Vatican II, um, prior to these conferences, um, one in 1968 in Medellin, and then another one in 1977 in Puebla, Mexico, that actually um, Oscar Romero attended as archbishop, um, the attitude had been, okay, well, it is, some people are rich and some people are poor and there are injustices. Let's try to get the wealthy to give charitably and comfort the poor and tell them that they can, they can offer their sufferings, basically. But that there's nothing that the church needs to do to address this. This is just the way of the world. And what we see with uh, Medellin and with the um, preferential option of the poor is, a, is really a broader view of God's vision that says it is, it is not God's will that some people suffer tremendously through oppression and poverty. And it is the church's responsibility to um, do their part to address this inequality, to be involved in what is happening here on earth. Oscar Romero said all the time, Christ enters into human history. And that means that there isn't anything in our human experience that isn't relevant to the gospel, that the gospel can't be applied to. Um, so it was really um, a kind, of a kind of an action statement of saying, we need to be involved in 
basically the, the great redemption of all creation, that we, we have a role to play in addressing injustice and addressing poverty. So we have an understanding of, of Rutilio Grande, who he is. We have an understanding of, of the larger, uh, you know, what's at play around him. Um, tell me a little bit about kind of how you came to him. Why, why did you find him interesting? Uh, and and, and what, what have you personally taken from his story? Well, I, I, am, I am also one of those many people who, who came to Rutilio Grande through um, St. Oscar Romero, who is my favorite saint. Um, and as I just, I, I thought, if, if he is someone whose life and work inspired Oscar Romero, he must be pretty incredible. And, and he is. He, um, he really revolutionized pastoral ministry in uh in el salvador and um i feel like i always admire <laughs> i always admire the traits and and saints that i feel like i don't really have much of myself and i'm not a tremendously courageous person so um i'm just drawn to all of these really courageous saints um and i didn't actually know until more recently about um his struggles with his mental health which were a big part of his story and i think these pivotal moments when we can look back, I think, with kind of retrospective terror at what might not have been um, had he not been able to work through those crises. So I think he's really, he's a patron, I think, for people seeking mental health care, and also an example of um, how we're called to be a church of accompaniment. Before we get into um, some of his struggles with mental health, I, t tell me more about the pastoral work he did uh, and, and why it was significant. Um, obviously, this is taking place in El Salvador. So what, what were the pastoral needs he was addressing uh, to the Salvadoran people? Um, and, and kind of put it in context, you know, vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, we're living in 2022, uh, you know, many of us probably in the United States, you know, how, how would we translate our own experiences of pastoral ministry to what was happening uh, in, in, you know, the 1970s in El Salvador? Yeah, well, um, so it's a very it's a very Catholic country, and had um, really established uh, patterns and um, celebrations and, and and parishes. But one of the things that Rutilio Grande really believed in was not imposing solutions from above, but he really wanted to empower the lay people and particularly listen to the voices of the people. Um, there were a lot of isolated uh, rural communities where people were just living in dire, dire poverty. And one of the things that he did was um, the priests who were just coming out of seminary and, go, and moving into ordination, he would embed them for a time in um, a very impoverished community just to listen. He was not in favor of the, the church um, coming up with solutions and saying, here you go, this is what you're going to do. He really wanted to work together and prioritize that listening first. What do the people need? What are they asking for? What are they, what are they looking for? And how can we fulfill those needs in, in new ways, basically? So t tell us a little bit about this, the project of this book, because um, uh, Rutilio Grande is, is one of, of, of many saints that you feature um, in a series of reflections. So tell, tell me about 
why this book was necessary, and then we'll we'll fit Rotilio uh, Grande into the uh, into the uh, the story. Okay, yeah, sounds good. So um, this is a it's a devotional on the saints and mental health, and um, it features six saints from different times and places with different mental health concerns, and also scripture, meditative prayer. Um, suggestions, but also um, one of one of the things that I wanted to do with this book was to do a deep dive into what the church has to say about mental health and mental health care. And I really didn't know. Um, and spoiler alert, it's a lot of beautiful things. Um, there's a lot of really beautiful things about the um, the the dignity of people who are um, struggling with their mental health and. Um, trying to overcome the stigma that still remains around um, mental illness and around mental health care. Um, I have heard things said at mass that about mental health that should not have been said. I am continually hearing stories from other people who have had things said to them that are really, um, they, they range from, from shaming to, to downright dangerous. Um, I once heard a priest say, I was talking about um, was talking about persevering and hope, and in his homily, it was a joke. But he said, "Of course, we don't do that anymore. We have therapy and medication for that." And I just thought, what a tremendously dangerous thing to say, actually. So, um, you know, what I what I wanted to do was um, bring these saints together. Um, the saints are really a way that I enter into prayer a lot in my life. There are so many of them. Um, a long time ago, when I was getting really into the saints. I was like, right, I'm just going to download a list of them from the Vatican. And then I'm just going to go systematically. And I'm just going to learn about all of them. <laughs> <laughs> there are more than 10,000. <laughs> somebody, somebody get to work on that list. Um, I think that we're starting to have more of a conversation around mental health in the church in the last couple of decades particularly also with the pandemic. This is now um, the latest statistic is one in five Americans um, suffer from mental illness. And so we're really talking about something that affects almost all of us, either personally or through someone that someone that we love, someone that we know who's, who's struggling with, um, with a mental health issue. So it's pretty easy now to find a list of say, okay, these are saints who struggle with this, who struggle with this, who struggle with this. But it's, it's often just a little sentence. And um, what I wanted to do was to do a deeper dive and bring, um, and bring this all together for people who want to, um, who want to prayerfully consider this issue. So, so for folks who are following along at home, the um, the title of the book is No Unlikely Saints, A Mental Health Pilgrimage with Sacred Company, uh, and it's published by Brickhouse in the City. Um, and, and so I, you, know, you said earlier how uh, you know you look back at the story of Rotilio Grande and, and uh, with some trepidation because there were, you know, obviously we, we've, we've said the tremendous impact he's had, right? His saint was Oscar Romero, and, and we know the importance of Romero and, and all the things that have come out of, out of his life and, and legacy and, and, and Grande's as well. Uh, but you also just said, right, how, um, how easy it is to, to treat mental health as, as a joke or something to be swept under the rug or, or to not to give it um, the due, uh, it, you know, the time it's due and the attention it's due. So now, so now, tell us um, about Grande's own struggles uh, with 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 mental health, um, and, and and those places where it, 
if he hadn't gotten that support, if he hadn't gotten um, what he needed, uh, you know, we would have a very different uh, conversation right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, it's really, I love him so much. It's really terrible for me to think about it. Um, uh, so Rutilio Grande had two major uh, mental health crises during his Jesuit formation. The first one um, occurred when he was uh, teaching at a Jesuit school in Panama. He always kind of had this anxiety. He experienced some trauma at an early age, um, the breakup of his family. His mother left and had a child with another man. And Rutilio was uh, raised by his grandparents. And um, also around the same time, his father owned a store and they were, you know, sort of at least uh, comfortable. And then the, the store closed and they, and they had this severe financial blow at the same time. So there was always kind of this instability in his life. And he just became um, overwhelmed with the stress of his responsibilities. And he basically had um, a, a break with reality. He was, um, he became passive to the outside world and then he was speaking unintelligibly. Um, and he was immediately uh, admitted to a clinic by his Jesuit brothers and he was diagnosed with catatonic schizophrenia. Um, he received treatment there and he recovered. And um, the beautiful thing was the way that his Jesuit community cared for him. They sent him to recuperate. They arranged for him to see psychiatrists. They gave him extra time to complete the requirements of his formation. And they really beautifully embodied this Ignatian principle of cura personalis, care for the whole person, mind, body, spirit, and also in res respecting really the autonomy of the person. So they would take into account his assignments, knowing that he did better in smaller houses as, as opposed to the, the larger Jesuit houses. Um, and they also cared for his physical health as he was recovering. The um, One of my favorite stories is, the vice provincial um, asked that Rutilio please be given an egg for breakfast every morning so that he could regain his strength and made sure that he had access to the kitchen because he needed to shore up his physical strength in recovering from that episode. Um, and the second episode happened between his minor ordination and his uh, major ordination when he was taking his vows to the Jesuits. And in that case, he really was tortured by scrupulosity, which is um, something that so many people of faith experience. It's a it's a, a terrible fear that we are violating our um, our morals or what our faith asks of us, that we've made a terrible mistake and we've been shut out from the, the love or the mercy of God. So what happened in Rutilio's case was that he, um, he apparently had some doubts about his fitness for his vocation during his minor ordination. And he feared that those doubts that he had had invalidated or desacralized his minor ordination. And so then he was afraid that it would be a sin for him to have his major ordination. This was a very long crisis that he went through. And he was reassured at every stage by his superiors, but it's 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 very hard to look back on the letters that he wrote and, and just the very real fear that he had, that he had, had wandered somewhere far away from where the love of God could reach. Um, and what happened was over time in the, in the next couple of years after he did make his, um, his final vows, he came uh, to a place of self-acceptance. Um, 
that occurred during his, his annual um, process of going through the spiritual exercises. And I, I love what you said earlier about that we may see a life that we think of as a failure. And that's exactly what he understood from God. And he said, you know, that there may be a life that seems like a failure from the outside, but it's not a failure in the eyes of God. And he came to accept that his mental illness was his cross to bear. But he, I think, came to an understanding that he wasn't bearing it alone. And then he went on to have this brilliant pastoral career. And there's nothing more in his letters or his papers about, um, about his mental health. Um, so it's really incredible that he was able to reach this place of acceptance and to carry on with really what was very stressful work. Um, and, and, and just, and just about every respect, um, in terms of the pushback that, that he received. So it's very inspiring. Yeah, no, it is, it is inspiring. And it's so, I, I, I don't want to say, it, uh, I don't want to, it, it feels so Ignatian in some ways, you know, because I think that in Ignatian language, right, the enemy tells us that we aren't good enough for God or that we, um, you know, we can't, we can be cut off from God's love and, uh, that we should kind of, you know, bury our heads in the sand until we kind of get our life life together. And of course that's, that's wrong, right? God is, God is present everywhere and desiring us. And, and, um, I think the key thing that you said, and of course the opposite of, of isolation is, is community. Um, and the importance of the Jesuit community in this story, um, is something that kind of jumped off the page to me when I was reading this chapter in your book. Um, it, you know, even reflecting now on, on Jesuits I've, I've spoken with who, who are always very intentional about, you know, who gets assigned where and, and why and, and, and what is the desire that's, 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 that's there in, in the individual Jesuit and how can that be, uh, you know, best manifested. Um, you know, I, I just think that, you know, it makes me think, of, co of course, of, of what communities am I a part of and, and who do I need to, you know, help lift up or better support or be more responsive to. Um, I, we're thinking about communities, you know, we'll, 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 we'll zoom out, talk about the communion of saints, right? That large community. And, uh, you know, you use that great image of, of downloading lists of, of thousands and thousands of saints. And I think that it's, it's tempting to look at a list like that and be overwhelmed in exactly the way you just described, right? That like, oh man, all these perfect people, I'm not good enough. I can never make it. And of course, a, a key of, of Pope Francis's pontificate has, has been all about, you know, we're all called to holiness. What, you know, but again, so many of us are, are, our familiarity with saints is one line, uh, you know, one line of description, a patron of whatever, as you've been kind of praying with this, this content and, and, and researching these different saints, um, what, what, what have you found, what are we lacking in the larger story of sainthood? Um, you, you know, when, when we, you know, are tempted to, to shorten the story to one or two lines, you know, what, what do we miss and how can we rectify that? Yeah, that's I love I love that question. And I think it for me, um, it goes back to the the whole person. And I think there definitely I think there definitely is this tendency to think, um, oh, that the saints are perfect and that, that the saints have nothing to do with me. Um, but one thing that I found in in working with um, and working with the saints and writing about the saints is the way that the the saints draw on each other. So, for instance, one of this one of the ones in this book is Saint Alphonse Mutatupadatu, who is um, from India, and she really drew upon Saint Therese of Lisieux and 
so much so that in in her suffering, uh, what she suffered from was um, was PTSD. Spent a lot of her life in her bed. I mean, talk about thinking that your life is a failure. But what she actually said was um, that that her sick bed was her was her altar, where she from which she preached to the world. Um, St. Teresa is known as the little flower and um, St. Alphonsa is known as the passion flower because of her identification with uh, the suffering, the suffering of Christ. So what I really love is um, I love a zoomed out view of the saints that we, we sometimes will see, okay, well, this, the saint has done this and done this and done this. But I love doing this deep dive into their, their letters, their diaries, where you see they, they did this while experiencing this horrible personal crisis. And I think I, I think a lot of the saints, and particularly the saints who struggled with mental illness, we think, oh, they are they are a saint because of it. like they're a saint in spite of their of their of their mental health crises or you know other things that they face. But I actually think that they are saints because of their endurance of those things, because of the way that they saw that suffering as a doorway, basically, into, into intimacy with Christ. Um, so one person who's doing a lot of work on the saints uh, right now is, uh, her name is Meg Hunter Kilmer. She has a couple of books out about the saints where she, I love the way that she does these deep dives and really resuscitating the whole person. So it's like, you know, less of a less of a two D image and more of like a living hologram of a person who isn't so different from from you and I. I like how you jump from two um, D, which made me think of like a you know like a pen on a like on a uh, I don't know piece of paper to like a living hologram that yeah. made you like puts me like a spaceship. I was like, wow, I was I was thinking like three D, you know, like a <laughs> yeah, Paper Mario <laughs> to like Super Mario. But anyway, um. No, that's awesome. And it makes me think too, you know, and and, uh, and I'd love your reflection on, on this is that, you know, God doesn't invite just part of ourselves into the, you know, into collaboration for the work of the gospel, right? God wants everything, like the whole, the whole thing, right? That's cure personalis. You know, so how, as, as you've been praying with these saints and reflecting, what kind of spiritual insights or or truths have have you been trying to put into practice that that cultivates that sense of hey like you know we've all have we all have shadows and light kind of dancing within us but it's all invited to the work of the gospel you know god god's inviting everything uh to the table yeah i think that um i think that for a long time in the church we have had a strong sense that um that our physical health is something that we can bring to God. There are so many stories, actually the the vast majority of the miracles in the gospels are healings, Um, primarily physical healings, but also these um, instances of of casting out demons, which which may or may not be a kind of a a pre-modern sort of understanding of of mental illness. Um, I don't know if there's always been an understanding that... um, that our mental health is something that we can bring. Um, what I really love for this actually is um, is uh, scripture, particularly the the Psalms. When we are, they're just so they're just so real. It's just like, hey, God, this sucks. There's a, there's a lot of Psalms of that, you know, of that of that nature. But also, um, I I really love um, this verse in, in Romans eight that. Um, you know, what, what will separate us 
from the love of Christ, neither death nor life, nor angels or principalities. What I actually like to do with mental health is to, is to just substitute and say, neither depression, nor anxiety, nor bipolar disorder, nor PTSD, nor any anything else there. And the, the vision that I that I have for this is the image on the cover of the book, but also for what I, my my hope for the church is, is um, to be a place where people can reach out and touch the hem of Jesus's robe with not just with with interpersonal problems, family problems, financial problems, health problems, but to know that the church is a place where we can reach out um, and try to touch the hem of that robe. I think that it's really, uh, it's, it's really heartbreaking. Some of the messages that I think people receive as the, as we're as a culture, but also as a church trying to move beyond the stigma and shame around mental illness and mental health care. I think that we have some kind of toxic positivity that trickles in from the prosperity gospel. Um, which is just a very American thing. Actually, the prosperity gospel really has its roots um, not necessarily in um, <clears throat> in money, but in in physical healing. Kate Bowler's book on this is really incredible. It's just a really deep dive on the history of the prosperity gospel. And I think too often um, people are made to feel, oh, if you if you just prayed more, if you just really surrendered this. If you if you just really um, <clears throat> if you had a, a more robust prayer life, and this I think is really one of the miracles of Rutilio's Jesuit community is no one ever said that to him. No one ever said you don't belong. Your faith is too weak. There were some people who privately expressed doubts that he would be able to complete his formation, but no one ever said to him you can't be a Jesuit. You don't belong here. Um, you know, there's, there's something wrong with you and it's your fault. Um, no one ever said that to him. And I think that's what allowed him to become the, the, the saint that he is. Right. I, um, I, I, I don't want to, uh, forget to, to ask you this question because I think it's really important for the, the scope of this book, but I know you, you worked with a, um, a mental health, uh, specialist in the, in the, in the preparation of this, of this book. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? collaboration and, and how that helped to, for you again, to, to deepen your understanding of these saints, but also to then bring that legacy right into the present uh, and, and you know, develop this kind of spirituality that, that you're unpacking here for us today. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up. She's, uh, she's incredible. Our mental health consultant, um, Sarah Alexander, she um, has a master's and is a licensed professional counselor. And I, I really, when I, when we started talking about doing this book, the first thing I said is I want to have someone who is a professional. I want to make sure that I'm, I want to make sure that I'm doing justice, this material, and I want to make sure that I'm doing it correctly. Um, so what we, uh, what we would do is I would write a chapter, we would send it to her. She would make any comments or additions. And then um, she also has given us in the book an overview of each of the, the um, six mental health conditions that we address. And then um, also she put together this really incredible resource guide at the, at the, at the end of the book. Um, but talking with her, um, just the, it broadened my vision of the compassion of God. And, and in talking to her, 
one of the things that she said that impacted me so much was she said, you know, and with all the clients that I see, I have never, ever had somebody come in for a first appointment. And I've said, you know, that I don't think your problems are big enough to warrant therapy for this. I don't, I don't think this is um, a big enough thing to address. But she said, what I say almost every single time is, I am so glad you're here and you did not have to suffer this long, basically. That, you know, the, the arms of God are open to you, that therapy and medication are good gifts given by God. There are a couple of really core things I was hoping to communicate with this book. Um, one is that you're not alone in these struggles. Um, and the, the second one is that um, therapy and medication are good gifts given by God and that the saints can can accompany us. And so I was really, really happy to have her on board. I would not have, I, I wouldn't have been comfortable doing it otherwise because I, you know, um, I have my own, my own experiences, but I really wanted someone who was really qualified to make sure that we, that we got it right. So just one more question before I let you go. And it's something I hope you can really leave our listeners with maybe for their own prayer, uh, you know, today or this week, something to kind of keep with them as, as they, as they go about their own struggles, you know, big, big, small, or, or in between. What has been a piece of scripture that has really stood out to you uh, as you prayed through this this book um, that you think would be really helpful for others to to pray with uh, on their own journeys? Um, I one thing that I one that I really love is um, Psalm one thirty, which is known as the De Profundis. Um, the first line of it is, "Out of the depths I cry out to you," and I'm just so comforted that we have a model of that in the Psalms, but also in, in lots and lots of other, other places in, um, in scripture. Um, but just that God is there for that, that we don't have to, that we don't have to censor that. Um, and the other one of which I mentioned before is the story of the, the woman who suffers from the hemorrhage that she reaches out to, um, touch the hem of Jesus's robe. My favorite thing about that story is that that whole episode is kind of an interruption. Jesus is on his way. This is in uh, Matthew's gospel. He's on his way to heal someone else who said, I please come to my house and, and heal this person. And, and then this happens along the way. Um, and I think the message that I receive there is that this we're, we're not an interruption to God. It's not an interruption to Jesus. Um, it's not it, it's not something that we need to be hesitant about, but to just be able to have that honesty and intimacy with God, to be able to reach out and and know that God is there, that God is listening, that God is ready to accompany us in our suffering. Beautiful. Cameron, thank you so much for being with us today and for your work on this book. Again, it's No Unlikely Saints, A Mental Health Pilgrimage with Sacred Company. I'll drop a link uh, in the notes, uh, but I hope you'll come back again soon. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference Communications team is Marcus Bleach, Mike Jordan-Lasky, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at, at @JesuitNews, Jesuit News, on Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, 
and at Facebook, facebook.com Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.